Alrighty, everybody, good morning. Welcome to a new semester for uh, Sunday School, time where we're hoping to, you know, learn together, uh, grow in our understanding of what Christ calls us to, maybe cover some more of the practical stuff. Um, you know, really taking Sunday mornings as a time to really open up God's Word in a way that uh, is an act of worship, uh, whereas in Sunday School, uh, it's acts of teaching. And we need teaching as well as we need exhortation so that we can learn and grow in our faith. And so this is going to be a six-week series, kind of in some ways unpacking our core value of being a culture of evangelism and hospitality. We're going to be unpacking a different word or a different concept each week. We're going to start off this week looking at public evangelism, next week looking at private evangelism, then the concept of witness, and then, not 100% yet, but the concepts of friendliness and friendship. Uh, or hospitality. We'll, we'll see how we go from here. And um, I hope you'll be helped by these. I've been already helped in studying for them. This is an area I, I want to understand better and grow in. And so as we consider public evangelism this week, uh, let's ask the Lord's help uh, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reached out to us, that you have revealed your gospel to us, the good news of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, that it's come to us through faithful preachers, through faithful parents and friends. And Lord, we ask that we will uh, be ever delighted by the message of Jesus, that we would ever have a conviction of the goodness of the good news, and that it would be our heart's delight to see that message spread far and wide to change lives. Lord, we pray uh, you'll bless our study. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're looking at public evangelism today, and I want us to start off just considering uh, the word and the idea of evangelism in Scripture. So evangelism, it's a transliterated word, and so what, what transliterated means is that they took a word in Greek, and instead of finding an English equivalent, they kind of Englishized the word, uh, to kind of do the same concept. So the Greek word is uh, euangelizo, and it's a verb. Uh, so when we say evangelism, we're using it in a noun form, and there's no noun form of this word in Scripture. It's always an action word. Uh, euangelizo, which means, uh, from two words here, you meaning good, and angel meaning message, right? So angels are messengers in Scriptures. And so this is a good message. And so in verb form, to evangelize in Scripture means simply to proclaim the good message, to speak out the good message. And therefore, it's sometimes translated as to evangelize, but it's more often translated to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news. So the, all those words, preaching the gospel, are often being translated from just this one Greek word, this verb, uh, euangelizo. And so its meaning is, uh, you could almost call it gospelizing, preaching the gospel. And I want us to consider a few ways that this word is used in the New Testament. And uh, just with the format in here, to note, um, we're going to have some time for questions at the end. So instead of doing them throughout like we usually do, if you have any questions or comments, uh, we'll have some extra time at the end, and we can hopefully go over some of those. This actually isn't a very long study this morning. I just want to consider a few ways that this verb to evangelize is used in the New Testament. Consider first Matthew 11, verse 5, where speaking of the work of Christ and what he's doing, they say, look, the poor have the gospel preached to them, 
Or other translations might say, the poor are evangelized. Or Luke 2.10, the angel said unto them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. So this idea of here, I bring you good tidings, it's the angel saying, I evangelize you. I'm bringing you this good message. Or Luke 9.6, and actually this is the word most, or this word is most used in the gospel of Luke. Luke loves to talk about how Jesus went around preaching the gospel. And we're told in Luke 9.6 that uh, Jesus and the disciples departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel, that is, evangelizing and healing everywhere. In the book of Acts, the same thing, Acts 11.20. Some of the people were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. So, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus. Paul expresses this in Romans 1.15. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. And if you collate all these different uses and you look at the way that this term is used in the New Testament, you come across some fairly interesting conclusions. And the first is that this term evangelizing, which is usually translated preaching the gospel, it's not a term that's ever really used of the week-by-week teaching and exhortation that goes on in a local congregation. This is a term that's almost solely used to express that initial public proclamation of the gospel to first-time hearers. So throughout the epistles, Paul is constantly using this word in the past tense. I came, I preached the gospel to you, you received it, and now I'm teaching and exhorting, and I want to go preach the gospel to others. This idea of preaching the gospel, proclaiming the good news, is most often used to talk about that initial public message where it's going to a new group of people, whether the first time it's going to a synagogue or going to another group elsewhere. And it comes to have this connotation of the work of an official herald, like a crier for a king. It's a proclamatory work. And so we read in Romans 10, 14 to 15 about the gospel message going forth to the nations. And we're told, we're asked, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Now, it's talking here that there are preachers, people entrusted with this task of publicly proclaiming this good news, to publicly evangelize. And it talks about a sentness, that there's a specific quality that some people are sent, whereas others are not. And this points to the fact that public evangelism in Scripture is something of an official task. It's an official job for sent ones, ones that have been commissioned, hands laid upon them, sent out to do this official public announcement of the good news of Jesus. Now, there are a couple instances where this word to evangelize is used in a personal or private context, and we're going to look at that next week, but it's most often used in a broad public context. And based on people that are doing this official work, this official title of an evangelist comes into use. An official sort of office or position in the early church, which is mentioned a few times. In Acts 21, Philip is called an evangelist. In Ephesians 4, 
when the different offices in the church are being listed out, that God gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, all official offices in the early church. And then lastly, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to do the work of an evangelist and to fulfill his ministry. So we see here that there is a place for these official sent ones who are tasked with proclaiming the good message of Jesus, especially towards those who've never heard. And so as we're considering this, we need to think, uh, what is the content of this gospel message that they're preaching? This is clearly very important. So what was the, the, uh, the core elements of their message? Well, if you read the book of Acts, you see again and again, they're preaching the message of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that there's a few core ideas that can be summed up very easily of what the message is. Uh, that they preached really the life of Christ, but you could say it this way. That the gospel they were preaching was the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth being both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. And you'll notice they're intentional to almost always use the term in the preaching in Acts, Jesus of Nazareth. And I think we often forget that. Uh, we are so concerned with, say, promoting the deity of Christ that we actually miss that for them, the big deal was that this is Jesus of Nazareth, that real Jesus, the one that grew up there in that family, that carpenter. And so they're saying right off the bat, Jesus of Nazareth, this man you knew who went around, the Lord raised him from the dead. And it actually almost always mentions that God raised him from the dead. God anointed him. God led him. And the New Testament writers are more concerned to tell us how God approved of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, than they spend time trying to prove uh, Christ's divinity. Not that they don't believe that or anything, but it's just interesting the angle they're usually coming from. They're coming to people that knew Jesus, and they want to prove to the Jews that this is the Messiah, that is the anointed one, the one God chose to bring redemption, the one God chose to bring salvation, the one God raised from the dead, the one God has seated on high. But it's still Jesus of Nazareth, a real human person around us. And they want to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is two things. He's Savior and Lord. And all this relates to the word the Messiah, that he's God's raised up one to save Israel from their sins and ascend to heaven to rule as king. Jesus Christ, Savior, and Lord. And the earliest confession of faith in the early church was simply, Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar is Lord, not any of those Greek gods are Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And that was essential to their message. And in one place, Paul explicitly tells us what is the gospel that he's preaching. In 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then jumping down to verse 11, so we preach and so you believed. The, the, the historical reality of the life of Christ is essential in the early church. And this almost reminds me of the Apostles' Creed, right? We read that Apostles' Creed often, 
And you see how historically based it is that Jesus, this real person, he was really crucified, really died, really buried, really ascended. And all that is going to prove that he now has the right to be Lord of all, Lord of every life, and he's the one who's coming back to judge. And so when I think of a summary of the gospel message, I think simply that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins and hope of eternal life. Forgiveness of sins, his work of Savior. Hope of eternal life, his work guiding us as Lord and King. And it's important for us to remember um, that the gospel message doesn't always have to include every theological reality that we know exists. It's fine to use basic summaries like are used in the New Testament that Jesus died and was raised and is Lord and King. And we don't have to always ensure when we're initially sharing the gospel or hearing it proclaimed that every detail of how the atonement works, every um, act of God in the order of salvation, um, calling, regeneration, justification, sanctification, all these things, those, those don't have to all be included every time. And in many ways in the New Testament, um, I heard someone one time use this term of gospel runways, that when looking at their situation, the apostles bring the gospel in different ways. Sometimes it's the gospel of forgiveness. Sometimes it's the gospel of peace. Sometimes it's the gospel of Jesus' lordship. And they, the gospel is so big and all-encompassing that there's many on-ramps to the gospel, many ways to get to that core message that Jesus Christ saves and Jesus Christ reigns. And this is the message the apostles, the evangelists, these official preachers were proclaiming, proclaiming to the public the reality that they themselves had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And they did this in many different places. And I think the locations of the preaching are instructive for us. Now, the main place that preaching occurs in the New Testament is in the synagogue. That is, those were the Jewish churches. And these were, the synagogues were not the temple. They were not ever an officially uh, constituted place in the Old Testament. But the synagogue was something the Jews developed because they wanted to worship God and grow in faith together. And so they were very much like our modern church services. They included praying, praising God, um, and uh, reading and teaching and exhorting based on his word. And the Jewish synagogues became the model for the Christian churches. They followed that same pattern of gathering to hear God's word and to pray to God. And almost always, when the apostles go to a new town in the New Testament, they first go to the Jewish synagogue. It's the very first place they go to proclaim the gospel. There's a few other places uh, that also pop up, and these pop up only once each in the New Testament. Once we're told that they were preaching in the temple, which was only in Jerusalem, right? So most cities didn't have a temple, just Jerusalem. Once we're told they preached in the marketplace, once we're told that for a while they were preaching in this place called the Hall of Tyrannus, which you might think of like a university lecture hall. Uh, once we see Paul preaching at the Areopagus, or also called Mars Hill, and once we're told that they were preaching in homes. So there's a few other places, but why would they go to the synagogues first? I think this is an interesting and instructive idea for us, is that, in a sense, the people closest to the gospel message, who have the most foundation of understanding of God, who ought to be the most ready to receive, 
are the ones in the synagogue, where Paul doesn't have to lay a foundation of the oneness of God, doesn't have to lay a foundation of the ethical life, but is preaching Christ as the fulfillment. And very often, many of the Jews in the synagogues believe. Many reject, but many believe. And these form the core groups from which the church usually expands. And I don't know if it was merely pragmatic or what their reasoning was, but it seems to me that to go and get a core group established before going out to uh, the less or the more difficult-to-reach places makes a lot of pragmatic sense. And if we think of corresponding locations today, uh, where do we want the gospel to be preached? If we think of, say, the uh, Hall of Tyrannus, we think of when we've seen debates or seen evangelists that go to university campuses or um, rent out concert venues or even uh, big crusade arenas. These are a similar thing uh, today, uh, similar to both the Hall of Tyrannus and the Areopagus. And one mistake I feel like I've seen um, at times is the idea that the main place the apostles preached was in the marketplace, that they were primarily walking around in the public milling about areas um, just crying out like a guy on the street corner. We only see that happen potentially once in the New Testament, and it's more like an Areopagus marketplace, that it was the place of the exchange of ideas, and where people were expecting and anticipating hearing people uh, sharing things and hearing people teach. And that is not really a culture that we have anymore here. Uh, it does exist in some parts of the world still. Even, I've been told, in Scotland, there is still public squares where there are people that get up on soap boxes and will cry out for their different product lines. Uh, we only ever see people doing that often preaching now, but that's a normal cultural phenomenon. And so that might be a very fitting place to preach the gospel in such cultures. Uh, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with someone doing that now, but I don't think we need to have an expectation that that is a required or necessary way to preach the gospel. I think we follow the New Testament pattern well when we engage in preaching the gospel in the public places where ideas are exchanged, where people are expecting to hear messages preached, whether even in secular um, venues, whether universities, uh, whether concert venues, anywhere where people are expecting and anticipating to hear ideas. And I think especially we need to be aware of um, the ability that the marketplace ideas are communicated online now. And so I think the fruitfulness we've seen from radio preaching, um, from some, though this has gone bad too, television preaching, but I know especially in Africa, radio preaching has had tremendous impact. And that's engaging in sharing the gospel in the ideas where public, um, public ideas are exchanged. So I think these are all really fitting avenues for preaching the gospel. And so if we think also then of the modern office, is there a modern office of an evangelist? And this is actually debated in reform circles whether there still are capital E evangelists or not. And we can say that pastors and local churches function as evangelists whenever they're proclaiming the message of Jesus. Whenever they're proclaiming those basics of the gospel, they are functioning as evangelists, but holding the office of pastor-teacher or minister, or teaching elder, or pastor, whatever your tradition is. And the thought would be that evangelists in Scripture holding that office were those going around, doing those initial gospel presentations, doing initial church-planting efforts in sort of a missionary context. 
So in the OPC, we actually do recognize a sort of evangelistic office, which we call people to basically go do church planting works and start new uh, churches. Mike was officially an evangelist for a while when he was starting Grace Fellowship. And that is sort of one that you might think of itinerant preachers. I think of people like Paul Washer, who have just traveled around sharing the gospel and seen tremendous fruit from bringing the gospel, even in very Christianized settings, to people who have actually never really heard it, never really heard the call to repentance and faith. And so if we're thinking of public evangelism and reaching the lost with the message of Christ, I think we need to recognize that I think in application for us from this first lecture is that if we're going to be a culture of evangelism, we need to be a culture of invitation to invite people to come hear the gospel preached by official representatives of Christ proclaiming his word. We often have lost the church-centeredness of evangelism in Scripture. That it's about building the church and letting God's commissioned preachers proclaim based on what God has called them to do to preach the gospel. And we are going to get to personal evangelism, which is wonderful and something to grow in. But we need not neglect, um, and we ought to honor the importance of public evangelism, which is the primary form of evangelism in Scripture, And it's been the form of evangelism most blessed by God in church history. Churches grow as there is preaching, and people are saved under the preaching of the word of God. And therefore, to be an inviting culture, to invite someone to church, to invite someone to hear the word of God, um, or it might be to invite them to something a little bit more accessible, like a Friday night fellowship, or inviting even to listen to a, uh, a YouTube sermon. We want to have an invitation culture, and especially inviting to church, because that's where the word of God goes forth with power, as we are all gathered together to worship. And even statistically, not that we want to be beholden to statistics, but most people come to faith in church from hearing the gospel preached in church, and most people come to church because they were invited. I was recently reading a book Um, on evangelism, and he was talking about a panel they had one time of a few unbelievers. And they got these unbelievers um, to just ask them a bunch of questions. And the sort of last thing they were asking them was, what would convince them to go to church? And so they said, you know, if the music was really awesome, would you go to the church? They were like, ah, probably not. They said, "If, if the preaching was really relevant and interesting and applicable, would you go? And they said, no. And then they said, what if a good friend invited you? I said, oh, yeah, of course. And realizing that that personal connection of invitation is actually one of the most powerful motivators to bring people under the preaching of the word. And I just want to enforce this idea that the primary place of evangelism is the local church uh, from just two examples in the New Testament that point out to us that the expectation is that unbelievers will be joining our gatherings. People sometimes hear this and they say, well, the New Testament doesn't talk about inviting people to church as an evangelistic strategy, but I think it expects it. Uh, Consider even the passage we heard a few weeks ago from James chapter 2. James chapter 2, he writes, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and that's actually the word synagogue there, he's actually likening the Christian church to a synagogue. If, if this rich person comes into your assembly 
And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, you say to the poor man, you stand over there. And this isn't explicit, but I think implicitly he's imagining two newcomers to the church. A rich person, and the rich people in James are usually unbelievers. And a poor person, he says, if they come into your assembly, this doesn't seem to be regular members. But he's expecting this rich person, this poor person are coming in, and it's really important um, how they're treated, right? That they're treated equally. But uh, more evidently, 1 Corinthians 14 which is all about what's going on in church services. How is the word of God being proclaimed? How are we participating and being built up? In verse 23, we're told that if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, that is, they're speaking in other languages, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? And so Paul is concerned here that the worship service be understandable to outsiders and unbelievers, right? They need to understand what's going on or else they'll think you're kind of crazy if they don't even understand what you're saying. But then he says, but if all prophesy, that is, speak the word of God for encouragement and edification, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is evangelism by the word of God in a local church, that when this unbeliever or outsider comes, the word of God exposes the secrets of his heart, that is, convicts of sin, and leads to a repentance, falling on his face, worshiping God. There's an expectation in the New Testament that outsiders and unbelievers will be coming to our worship services. And how, then, will they most often come? Because they're invited. They're invited especially by a friend. And so then, what's our responsibility as a community to really take seriously the role of public evangelism? Well, the responsibility of uh, the teachers and leaders is to ensure that the gospel message about Christ has a big part in every service. And not just in the sermon, but in the songs, in the praying in the preaching, that Christ as Savior and Lord would be evidently displayed. And if we can trust that as congregants, then you know that when you're inviting someone, they are going to come and hear the message about Jesus Christ. And again, it doesn't always necessarily have to be that perfect package that we've expected, but those threads of Christ's lordship, his salvation and redemption, are they tied into everything? And then as congregants, I think we also have a responsibility to ensure that we are expecting unbelievers and outsiders to enter and that we're being appropriately welcoming, showing them a welcome, making them encouraged to be among us. And we don't want to make the mistake of assuming that everyone that comes through the door is a Christian. Uh, a few months ago, I did this very thing. I was asking someone, and I just naturally you know, went, oh, what church are you from? And realized then they were actually an unbeliever. And I realized, oh, why am I having this expectation? We ought to be expecting unbelievers and outsiders to be coming, and then to show them a welcome in Christ, and hope that they hear about Jesus in the preaching of the word. And so, maybe some homework for us. It would be a great idea to take a personal inventory of the relationships you have, thinking, 
who in my life might I possibly invite to church? And you might be surprised at how many relationships or connections you have where you think, I could realistically invite that person to church. That would be a really good first step. Begin praying about that list of names and asking the Lord for softness in their hearts, boldness in you to simply invite them to church. You don't have to try to manipulate a conversation to try to shoehorn in your gospel presentation. Just invite them to church. Welcome them into a community where Christ is proclaimed week by week. Perhaps also add to that list, what are some relationships that you think you could grow in that you might be able to realistically invite that person to church? How could you seek to deepen that relationship? Instead of being so to yourself in your workplace, maybe actually have a water cooler conversation. If you're anything like me, you just like going in, get, get the job done, get out, no one bother me. But uh, are we missing opportunities to connect and build relationships um, And not just so that we can try to get our agenda done, but to really engage people, love them, and um, develop avenues where the gospel can be heard and known. And I hope, in some ways, that this takes a bit of the pressure off us. You are not all called to go to the street corner and preach the gospel to the passersby. So don't feel bad that you're not doing that. Uh, There's no, and this might actually be surprising to you, there's no command in the New Testament for the layperson to evangelize. And that is like this official word of proclaiming the gospel. Now, we're going to talk about next week what it means sharing your faith. Uh, But different language is used. But this official proclamatory public effect is not something everyone's called to. The official public proclamation of the gospel is for ones called, gifted, and sent by God. And so to simply just invite, that's something everyone can do. And it actually matters. It's not a small thing. It's not um, just, well, I guess you'll give us something to do. It makes a big difference because that's most often how people come to faith, through the preaching of the word of God. And churches grow and conversions multiply usually through networks of invitation. Even think of how perhaps Grace Fellowship has grown uh, through believers, It's one person knows this person who says, oh, this is a great place, I've been going, come check it out. Or I heard from this person or this friend or cousin of mine. It's these sort of networks of invitation. And when this gets to an unbelieving community, it can have really powerful rippling effects. And that's often how um, a lot of these churches that have grown dramatically, they've grown because one unbeliever then invites all their unbelieving friends. Because they're the ones who have the networks that most of us don't. And then they have their network of all their unbelieving friends. And then all of a sudden, the churches are rapidly multiplying. And also people know that they can expect that they're going to hear gospel preaching when they're invited. And so that's simply in lesson one. Our takeaway is that a culture of evangelism, a big part of it is being a culture of invitation. Not just cloistering up and holding on to what we have but welcoming and inviting people to come and hear the preaching of the gospel. Uh, Let's pray, and then we can have some time for questions. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have raised up many to proclaim your word. Thank you that we get to hear of Christ and his work week by week. And Lord, we do ask that we will be a welcoming and inviting people, that we will be bold to invite those in our lives to come and to hear of Christ and that we will be a welcoming community um, to see many come to know you. Lord, would you cause these networks of invitation to spread and to grow, 
and that we will see the gospel as it's preached do its work in hearts and lives. Lord, we pray that this would be all to the glory of Christ, that he would receive the reward of his suffering. And Lord, we know that there is a guaranteed harvest, that the fields are white, and we pray that we would see a harvest um, in even greater measure in our day. And Lord, we ask these things to you, coming in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Alrighty, some time for questions, if anyone's got any. Or comments, feel free to add.